This is Dr. Sarah Howard. The Pure Animal Podcast is growing. We're so excited to share our new Pure Animal Ambassadors with you. Join us monthly as we continue to dive deep into the most recent, relevant and interesting topics with our new team members. Associate Professor Wendy Boltzer, Small Animal Surgeon. Dr. Meng Siak, Veterinary Dermatologist. Dr. Nicole Rue, Integrative Veterinarian. And Professor Caroline Mansfield, who's a Small Animal Internal Medicine Specialist. We're thrilled about our new offering and we're sure you'll be able to find inspiration for your practice through the clinical wisdom of our new ambassadors. Welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast, where we enlighten veterinary workers, animal lovers, and pet parents about integrative approaches to veterinary medicine and pet health. The Pure Animal Podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders, past and present. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and joining us today is Dr. Meng Siek, and we're talking all about skin barrier health. Dr. Meng Siek is a board-certified veterinary dermatologist with the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists. He studied at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia, then did an internship in veterinary dermatology before completing his residency at Murdoch. Hello, Meng, and welcome back to the podcast. It has been nearly five years since I first interviewed on the Pure Animal podcast, and I'm so excited to have you back. How are you today? Hi, Sarah. It's good to be back. Thank you so much for um, inviting me back to, to this podcast. I'm really looking forward to uh, what we're going to talk about today. Yes, me too. And something that is um, becoming more and more relevant this time of year as we move into the warmer months. Um, we are going to be talking today about skin barrier health and what can affect a skin barrier and how healthy it is and or unhealthy. And then we're going to be touching on the skin microbiome as well, which is becoming more and more relevant to practitioners and dermatologists. So we'll just get started with some, um, some sort of basics for our listeners. So what is the skin barrier? So Sarah, skin barrier is the outermost layer of the skin. And the skin is broken into different layers, but the most important component is called the stratum corneum. Now, the stratum mm-hmm. corneum is basically uh, consists of terminally differentiated keratinocytes or skin cells, and they are embedded into this uh, lipid lamella that contains mm-hmm. various um, uh, uh, ingredients such as ceramides, free fatty acids, and cholesterol. Mm-hmm. The skin microbiome is basically, um, it consists of all the microbes in the habitat. So for example, in the skin, on the skin, it's a population of bacteria, archaea, fungi, viruses, their genetic material and metabolized on and within the body surfaces. Now the skin mm-hmm. barrier and the skin microbiome plays an extre- extremely important role uh, in protecting the body from external factors. Yep, and would that be... Uh, things such as um, possible infectious microbes and also pollens and even like UV rays and chemicals and different things like that? Absolutely. So traditionally, the skin barrier and microbiome was thought to be just a, a physical barrier. But now we know it's also a chemical, immunological and mi- microbiological barrier as well. 
So as you mentioned, Sarah, it plays a very important role protecting against allergens from penetrating the skin and causing inflammation. It, con- it sort of reduces the risk of infections from developing on the skin and also mm-hmm. protects against parasites from attacking the skin as well. Okay, so parasites like fleas and ticks and mites and things like that? Absolutely. Demodex, ticks, mites, as you mentioned. Yeah. Okay. And so you mentioned that the skin barrier essentially is a composition of cells with a lipid uh, sort of lamellae, as you describe, between the cells. Would you would you consider the actual microbiome that exists on top of the skin surface as part of the skin barrier as well because of that protective mechanism that it offers? Oh, absolutely. So the microbiome on the skin um, they basically they, use, they typically contain uh, very harmless organisms. And in fact, yep. many of them are actually beneficial to the skin barrier. So for example, um, because of the range of organisms on the skin, it reduces the risk of uh, potentially pathogenic organisms from attacking the skin and therefore causing secondary infections. Yeah, sure. So really similar in function to the microbiome that exists within the gut. Because in the gut, we've got our beneficial bacteria and yeast and um, archaea, as you mentioned, similar to the skin. And they can protect against sort of opportunistic infections and sort of keep things all functioning normally in there. So is there a link between the (coughs) organisms that you find on the skin and those in the gut? Absolutely. So there's some more and more research into the gut microflora uh, in both human, human studies and veterinary studies. And what they found is that the gut microflora plays an important role in the gut health, obviously, and also in mm-hmm. other diseases such as Alzheimer's and things like that. Now, yeah, we right. also now believe that the gut microflora can influence the microbiome on the skin. Therefore, uh, it's sort of a holistic approach in terms of managing the skin issues and the gut issues as well. Yeah, sure. Well, I'd love to talk a bit more about that later on in our chat, how you can manipulate the skin health via the gut and vice versa, because that's certainly of interest to me. But let's talk about, so we've talked about what what a healthy skin barrier sort of looks like in terms of the structures involved and the organisms involved and the functions of a skin barrier. But what happens when a skin barrier becomes unhealthy or compromised and how does this actually occur? So, how does it occur? It basically, uh, there's, there's several triggers to it. So we know that there's genetic predisposition to development of a, um, a, a compromised skin barrier. And we also mm-hmm. know that the skin barrier can be damaged by inflammation. Now, this inflammation yeah. can come from, for example, skin issues such as scratching, biting, chewing, uh, and subsequently it can be then be infested with pathogenic bacteria and their toxins, which further damage the skin barrier. Now, we now know that uh, atopic dogs, so dogs with environmental allergies, they have a compromised skin barrier, which allows more water waste from the skin. It also causes the skin to be more alkaline. And acidic skin is required to decrease the proliferation of bacteria and yeast on the skin. And as a consequence, the acidic skin, oh sorry, the alkaline skin 
will then further damage the uh, content, the fat layer within the skin barrier. So like oh, you okay. mentioned before, ceramides and proteases. Yeah, sure. Now, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in terms of the microbiome, so in a healthy skin barrier and a healthy uh, microbiome, uh, there's, a, there's a very good biodiversity of different organisms. However, mm-hmm. when you have a atopic dog again, we found that this biodiversity is significantly reduced and there's a predominance mm-hmm. of a staphylococcus bacteria. So all in yeah. all, it creates a dysbiosis where there's an imbalance between the different organisms. And that's a very, very uh, important clinical sign you see in human allergies uh, where they are very oh, prone okay. to staphylococcus aureus infections. And the same thing happens in allergic dogs. So these dogs are very prone to having recurrent skin and uh, ears, bacteria, and yeast infections. Yeah, right. Okay, so if a dog has a genetic predisposition to, what would you call it, a, a disrupted or a, um, sort of a, a less than ideal skin barrier, does yes. that mean that, I guess this is sort of getting a, a bit into epigenetics here, but does that mean that they're they're essentially destined to have dermatitis and skin issues for their life? Or is there something that we can do really early on to intervene and try to stop that sort of process being kicked off? Yeah, so um, a lot of the studies have been done in human medicine for a very, very long time. So in terms of genetic predisposition, what they found is that um, the first re- first kind of research was into a protein called filagrin. So the filagrin mm. is a very important protein in the skin barrier. And in humans, if you have a mutation in filagrin, uh, you have a significant risk for developing uh, atopic dermatitis. Now, in dogs, okay. there are some studies that show that mutations or decreased expression of filagrin uh, can be a contributing factor. Now, apart from filagrin, there's also other, um, I suppose, abnormalities that's been found uh, that could be genetically linked. So, for example, in terms of the content of the lipid lamella, they found mm-hmm. that in allergic individuals, uh, they have decreased free fatty acids, ceramides, and as a consequence, it affects the packing of the lipids and the ultrastructure of the skin barrier. Now, other right. things they found, and this is all very interesting, uh, mm. is they also found that the keratinocytes, so the skin cells, are in allergic dogs and, and in humans, I suppose, uh, they, they develop abnormally. So this is in terms of the shape, and differentiation. Mm. So instead of being really um, uh, impact, uh, sorry, compact, flattened uh, skin cells, yeah. they are slightly more rounded and less compact. Now, other things that they also found are things like um, tight junctions abnormalities. So again, tight junctions are they, they, they are proteins that function in regulating the permeability of the skin, and lots yeah. of um, abnormalities uh, have been found. Uh, in both humans and dogs as well. So yeah, all in sure. all, um, so genetic factors play a big role, but we also know external factors play a role as well. So these include uh, the diet, the lifestyle, yep. uh, etc. And so definitely a lot of things we can do to try and restore the skin barrier and um, improve or restore the biodiversity of the microbiome. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you believe that a lot of the skin disease that you see being a dermatologist starts with a compromised skin barrier? Is this the starting point for, you know, 
recurrent infections and self-trauma and kicking off that inflammatory process? Absolutely. We're starting to see as a veterinary dermatologist, uh, younger and younger dogs presenting for allergies. Um, and we definitely find in many of these cases, uh, if you look at the skin and hair coat thoroughly, you can see that they're often dry, scaly, yeah. uh, of a, a poor quality. Now, a poor compromised skin barrier is also uh, another reason for why dogs do not respond as well to traditional um, treatments uh, in terms of mm-hmm. allergy treatments. And that's because if you don't restore the skin barrier, the dog is very prone to uh, being sensitized to new allergens, recurring mm-hmm. infections. So the improving the skin barrier is both a, a, a primary problem but also a consequence of the uh, chronic scratching, itching that they do when they're allergic. Okay. No, that's great. I think that's a really, really good summary. So we've talked a bit bit about this already, but essentially a compromised skin barrier can lead to that that sort of itch cycle, the self-trauma, secondary infections. Is there anything else that you see in practice that is related directly to a compromised skin barrier? Yeah, there's other uh, diseases from obviously allergies that are associated with a compromised skin barrier. So, for example, we also see a lot of dogs with hormonal or endocrine diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they yeah. often present with um, you know, a really poor dull hair coat. We rarely, but we, we do still see some dogs with parasitic uh, skin infestations. So, flea mm-hmm. bites, uh, tick bites, dermatosis. Uh, they can also compromise, affect, uh, they are also associated with a compromised skin barrier. Uh, and last but not least, we also see some dogs with, um, I suppose, uh, really unusual uh, hair coat diseases. So things like alopecia X, uh, color dilution alopecia, where again, apart from having, um, you know, hair loss, uh, the dog is also very prone to um, infections uh, because of a compromised skin barrier. Uh, right. And would they? Would you see those um, sort of alopecic syndromes that you mentioned really uncommonly? Or being a dermatologist, do you actually see those cases? Because I remember when we learned about them at uni, it seemed like they were just in the textbooks and they were never really a real thing. But you're yeah. actually seeing cases like that. Well, I think being a veterinary dermatologist, we're lucky to see the really complicated and unusual yeah. cases. So, uh, yeah, we probably see about 20 30%. Uh, of our referrals are, are, are due to non-allergic uh, diseases that present with hair loss, skin scaling, okay. and recurring infections. That's quite a lot. Yeah, 20 mm, yeah, to 30%. Yeah, yeah. We, are, we, are, we see quite a wide range of uh, cases, which is kind of keep me on my toes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we've already touched about this already, but how can a healthy skin barrier actually reduce the chances of the skin becoming sensitized to allergens and other skin diseases? You talked about the the importance of maintaining that um, that strong structure of the keratinocytes and the lipid bilayer, but how else can this that can the skin barrier help to reduce the chances of that sort of each cycle kicking off? So this is all where it gets quite interesting. So very briefly. Uh, the pathophysiology of allergic disease is such that they have a what we call inside-out-outside-in hypothesis. So inside-out means that the skin barrier is compromised. So allowing these allergens that would normally be kept out of the skin to penetrate the skin and therefore create inflammation. Now, the mm-hmm. outside-in hypothesis means when the skin is damaged. So for example, 
from allergen penetration, infection, uh, parasites, things like that. Uh, what it then does is that it triggers a very different inflammatory response. And what happens in the end is that the body is then sensitized to these allergens. So instead mm. of being very basically very normal, you know, um, you know, proteins you see in the environment, the body recognizes these allergens and they acknowledge it as being harmful. And what they do is they then create an inflammatory response to these allergens. And after a while, the body becomes sensitized to these allergens. So when the pet, um, the dog ex experiences these, uh, exposed to these allergens in the future, uh, it's prime and it will trigger a very mm -hmm. severe inflammatory response. Now, mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things that I learned in, in the last couple of years uh, is that uh, in human medicine, you can actually uh, uh, um, be sensitized to food allergens, uh, not just through oral ingestion, but even just through uh, cutaneous absorption. And this is why oh, right. nowadays uh, in, in infants and babies, uh, they discourage having any, uh, I suppose, uh, plant-based um, moisturizers, for example, or... or, 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 ah. or yeah, yeah, or even, uh, I suppose, a topical moisturizer that contains nuts, uh, for example. Uh, and the, the theory is that they believe that through cutaneous absorption, uh, you can actually sensitize the immune system to be uh, become allergic to these uh, food, food ingredients like peanuts and nuts and things like that. And I thought that was oh, very, wow. very interesting. Yeah. So yeah, when I see yeah. very young dogs now, um, uh, even if they have a food allergy, for example, uh, or even uh, obviously, you know, the environmental allergies. Uh, one of the things that I'm I'm really really keen on is to try and improve the skin barrier. So what mm -hmm. I hope is to basically restore this physical, chemical, microbiological barrier, such that when these dogs are growing, are getting older, uh, they are hopefully less sensitized to new allergens, and therefore, mm -hmm. hopefully, their symptoms will be less severe. That makes perfect sense. And is there an age that you see dogs start to become sort of less sensitized to new allergens? Like is there a time when their immune system is is fairly mature and new allergens um, don't tend to result in, you know, an allergic response? Yeah, so the typical age of onset for development of environmental allergies is something between 6 to 12 months old up to 3 years mm -hmm. old. So I do believe okay. the first three years of their lives is a critical yeah, period where critical. we can maximize uh, the benefits of improving the skin barrier. Yeah. And they say that's the same, you know, with young children establishing their gut microbiome is that really you have that precious window of sort of, you know, up to three, four years um, or even a bit less to do that. So to try, you know, try and avoid at all costs in that time, um, unnecessary antibiotic use and, correct, you know, re really trying to, to ensure that, um, you know, that they're, they're having a really rich diet full of, you know, a variety of different fibres and even probiotic use if, if recommended by, you know, their health professional. But I would say, you know, same sounding similar with dogs um, for establishing their skin microbiome as well. Yeah, I think in humans, there's definitely more studies uh, that have been done. And as you mentioned before, Sarah, uh, in, in children, I think uh, improving the gut flora, microbiome, um, you know, when they are so between six to so nine to 12 months old is, is very, very important. And this mm. is uh, to induce what we call tolerance. So tolerance means the body is able to recognize these allergens as being harmless and therefore not want immune response. Yeah. 
Now, yeah. are these indoors uh, are, are, are not as um, as detailed, uh, unfortunately, but mm. I do feel that when these dogs uh, start to present, um, you know, as early as you know, any age, so very young puppies, uh, I think that's where I would be very, very um, keen to improve the gut microflora. Uh, and mm. even in older dogs, so even if you have dogs, you know, that's middle age or much older dogs, um, I believe that if they do have any type of skin diseases, uh, there is definitely a lot, a lot of um, benefits in trying to improve the gut microflora. And what sort of, you know, what sort of recommendations are you giving to your clients on how to restore the gut microflora or how to sort of establish that healthy gut microbiome? Yeah, there's quite a few things. So um, quite a few things that's sort of been done and published in, in the literature that unfortunately is not um, commercially available at the moment. Uh, and there's also quite a few lifestyle, um, I suppose, uh, suggestions or, or, or association. So for example, uh, uh, sort of some recent studies, and they're, they're already quite recent, uh, they talk about feeding um, the benefits of um a, a, a very diet uh, consisting of, of of freshly prepared food. So the mm-hmm. theory is that it might include the my, gut microflora that way. Uh, obviously, you know the studies are still quite new and, and more needs to be done. Uh, in terms of uh, probiotics, I think they're very beneficial. We are still trying to recognize the sort of um, the important uh, good bacteria that we want to be in the guts of these dogs. Uh, and again, mm. in human medicine, it's, it's well established. Lots and lots of different organisms yes. are for various different functions. But in dogs, the two big ones are lactobacillus uh, and also the Enterococcus uh, genus. So a lot of recent studies have been uh, uh, has been using a combination of these two, uh, and, mm-hmm. the, and, the, and, the, and the studies are actually quite uh, encouraging and quite promising. That's great. And would you be, so this is um, specifically for the gut, but would you be also sort of leaning on that research to help to normalise the skin microbiome and sort of set that up for success in a young dog? Absolutely. So some of these uh, new research into improve the skin microbiome, uh, they, they actually use either oral probiotics and there's also some mm-hmm. studies that uses topical probiotics. And yes. again, in the human medicine, uh, lots of topical probiotics have been shown to improve skin diseases. So for mm-hmm. example, um, uh, it can improve uh, clinical signs of atopic dermatitis. It can promote wound healing. Uh, in fact, I, I found out quite recently, it is also being used to treat acne and as an anti-aging oh. product. So, uh, oh, anti-aging, of wow. Yeah, exactly. So lots of benefit for are topical probiotics in treating inflammatory skin diseases in humans, uh, and definitely yeah. uh, emerging research has been uh, is being done to use topical and oral probiotics to improve the gut microflora, so that you can also improve the skin microbiome. Now, one mm. last thing before I say this is I, I thought it was quite interesting. So, fecal um, uh, transplant. So, so mm. um, uh, fecal microbiome transplant is the proper word. Sorry. Uh, so mm-hmm. in human medicine, it's been shown to improve, um, you know, um, gut diseases, IBD, uh, etc. Yeah. Now yeah. in veterinary medicine, uh, it has been shown to be beneficial in dogs with uh, gastrointestinal diseases. So again, you know, IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, there's one study uh, that actually shows that uh, oral fecal microbiome transplant uh, in allergic dogs can actually decrease the itch level 
the skin leisure score. Oh, yeah. Uh, improve the skin hydration. So uh, that was really quite interesting. That's very um, interesting. Very interesting. It's only a very, uh, it's, a, it's, it's only one study, obviously, but, uh, but, uh, but outcomes of that study were actually very, very encouraging and very promising. So watch this space, um, you know, we might get more yeah. similar studies coming out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I know you're mentioning sort of human research quite a lot. Um, and we know that unfortunately in a lot of areas the veterinary literature is, you know, um, very few and far between compared to what's been published for humans. But are you um, are you sometimes sort of experimenting with different things that's only been looked at in humans and trying to sort of translate that research over to dogs even if there's nothing being published yet? Uh, absolutely. I think obviously, you know, veterinary medicine research and studies tend to lag behind the humans, uh, human yeah. side. So, which is a bit of a shame, but I think we're trying to encourage more and more veterinarians uh, to do, you know, develop interest and do more research. So mm-hmm. as a veterinary mm-hmm. dermatologist, I think it's sort of a, a bit of a pressure on us to try and keep up with the latest research, not just in veterinary medicine, but human side as well. Uh, so yeah. definitely, we we have experiences with reading the, reading the human literature, attending human uh, allergy conferences, uh, and we even invited human uh, allergies to uh, lecture at our annual veterinary meeting. So it's all very interesting. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so what, that's great. Mm, yeah, yeah. So sort of a bit of a cross pollinating, I think, and sometimes what we do uh, kind of interests them as well. So yeah, yeah. so definitely we we sort of try and uh, you know. Um, Think of ideas of how we can, you know, bring all these, uh, you know, established research and, and, and ideas into the veterinary side. And obviously humans and, and dogs and, and cats are, are quite different. Uh, but I think the concepts are important. So the concepts of early intervention, uh, having this holistic approach, not forgetting that, yes, you can manage the allergies using, you know, medication, tablets, you can give the antibiotics. But, but don't forget, the skin barrier is a big issue and you can restore the skin barrier in many different ways, topically, orally, uh, which are very convenient, nice and easy. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. now we also think, okay, uh, we can actually improve the gut microflora. <clears throat> so we're definitely mm-hmm. looking into, you know, um, considering probiotics, uh, dietary changes so that we can restore the skin microbiome and the gut microbiome uh, both at the same time. Together. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Totally. Yes. Yeah, no, I think it makes perfect sense. And I think from a, you know, a pet parent's perspective, having, uh, you know, giving your pet something that's going to not only benefit one organ system, which is the skin, but also the other um, in the same, you know, might be the same probiotic um, supplement I'm sure that would be a very attractive option. Particularly, I would imagine that some of your cases would require quite intensive treatment plans with quite a few different elements. Um, and we'll we'll go into that next. I'd, I'd love to hear about you know some some topical recommendations that you give and some other oral sort of supplements and things that you might recommend to help to, to restore the skin barrier. Um, mm. What would be a typical sort of treatment plan if you had a let's call it a twelve month old puppy that was itchy had sort of dry scaly skin a bit pink looking and you were concerned that they were going to you know develop um or had already developed environmental allergies what would be your approach to a case like that yeah that's good so the typical sort of approach that we see uh, obviously as you mentioned sarah our dogs are uh, itchy so they come in with a history of you know biting their paws scratching their body often keeping their owners up at night uh, overnight yeah <laughs> 
Uh, and obviously, you know, smelly skin, odorous skin. So mm-hmm. essentially what we do is the very important thing we want to do is we want to control uh, the allergies in a holistic uh, in a holistic manner. So mm-hmm. first of all, we need to improve the, the, the status of the dog. So we need to make the, make the dog comfortable first. So to do that, we need to control the inflammation. So mm-hmm. how do we control the inflammation? Lots of ways. First of all, we want to make sure that if the dog is infected, that we treat it um, with appropriate antimicrobials. Now, treating the, antimic- treating the infections can be done in many different ways. Um, we obviously want to practice good antibiotic uh, stewardship. So mm-hmm. lots of topical antiseptics uh, before you consider oral antibiotics. And this is also important yeah. because oral antibiotics can affect the gut microflora. So we want yeah. to use that only as required. So we treat the infections. Yeah. And then we need to control the itch, the inflammation. So we have both topical and oral uh, medications that can symptomatically reduce and control the itching. Now, obviously, it doesn't stop there. So we want to improve the skin barrier. So lots of topical oral uh, supplements uh, that we, we give in these dogs. And once the dog is more comfortable, we then plan for the future. So we will need to find out what is causing the dog to be itchy. So typically, they're allergic. So we do an allergy workup. We will investigate mm-hmm. uh, for a food allergy. So we start them on an elimination diet trial. And if that doesn't resolve the symptoms and it gives us a diagnosis of uh, atopy, so environmental allergies, uh, mm-hmm. then we obviously will offer desensitization as a long-term plan. So, uh, yeah. so definitely, in the, the, first, the first thing we need to do is to get the dog comfortable, treat the infections, restore the skin barrier, and then have a long-term plan for the owners. Because if we don't have a long-term plan, what we'll find is that the skin itching and infections will recur. Uh, and obviously, yeah. this is quite frustrating for both the dog and the, and the owners. And you mentioned that when we're restoring the skin barrier, um, sort of that second step, or perhaps it's happening in parallel, you mm. might recommend some oral and topical different um, you know, supplements and different products. What sort of ingredients could people who are listening sort of look out for in yeah. those? So, so lots of things. So in terms of uh, ingredients, so we need to then go back to the ultra structure of the skin barrier. So as we mm-hmm. discussed earlier, uh, the skin barrier, uh, lots of different layers, but the stratum corneal is probably the most important. So we know that it's embedded in this lipid lamella. Now, one of the biggest components in this uh, lipid lamella is ceramides. So ceramides are very important components. It's the largest component in the stratum corneum. Uh, and obviously, we also know there's free fatty acids and cholesterol. So one of the biggest uh, ingredients I look for is actually ceramides uh, because it has been shown uh, in humans and in veterinary medicine to rapidly restore the skin, skin barrier. So the, the lipid mm-hmm. structures uh, of the stratum corneum. Now, the other thing that I will also consider um, uh, oral essential fatty acids. Now, there's some mm-hmm. controversy about whether they can trigger food allergies, so uh, we've got to obviously take the case into consideration. But using mm-hmm. things like uh, oral omega-3s, uh, so DHA, EPA, uh, can be both anti-inflammatory, uh, it can also help restore the skin microbiome, uh, as well okay. as the skin barrier, and also essential six. So essential six tend to be used more topically. Uh, again, to try and restore this lipid lamella of the stratum corneum. Yeah, that's omega-6, you mean? Omega-6, yeah. The, 
Omega six, yeah, omega six. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, and what about omega nine? Because I know that that's an ingredient sort of seen, you know, in olive oil. That's a component of olive oil, which is um seen in the market. Can you comment on omega nine and if it's useful? Yeah, I think what we now know is the omega nine fatty acid, which is not one of those common fatty acids that you know we take uh, uh for you know for our general health. Uh, the actually found that again in human medicine. Uh, it has a role in uh, dampening down inflammation uh, and also cancer management. So, um, so definitely, I think they are sort of one of those things that are uh, in in uh, you know in conjunction with omega three and six. And I suppose the the thing that we also need to remember is that it's so often a ratio. So we want an ideal ratio between omega three, six, and nine. Um, mm-hmm. to sort of maximize what we're trying to achieve, which is to you know, improve the skin barrier, the, the microbiome and the gut flora as well. Yeah, sure. Okay, no, that's great. And we're talking sort of about topical antimicrobials and topical ceramides, as you discussed earlier, are you essentially choosing a shampoo that has this on and sort of leaving it on for a certain period of time or um, are you preferring that people use more of a moisturiser so that it stays on the skin and takes longer to absorb? So one of the biggest things about uh, when I recommend about shampoos is we need to understand that we need to bath a dog uh, as frequent as required but not mm-hmm. overdoing it. So lots yeah. of studies have shown that um, I suppose it depends on what you use shampoo for. So I would usually prefer to use a shampoo that can be, I suppose, uh, improve the skin barrier, but also yeah. if the dog has active infections or prone to reinfection, there's something that's a bit more antiseptic as well. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so bathing is important. It can treat infection, uh, remove scales, uh, dead cells, exudation, allergen, yeah. uh, and yeah. obviously improving the skin barrier. So shampoos are, are, are useful, but we also know that shampoo can be a bit time-consuming uh, and some um, pet owners are unable to bath, for example, like really big dogs. Uh, and this yeah. is what I usually combine with uh, leave-on moisturizers. Uh, yeah. Because moisturizing effect uh, is obviously more longer-lasting. Uh, you don't have to uh, rinse them off. Uh, and you can use it very conveniently up to every day uh, if you need to. And the benefit mm-hmm. of doing that is that, um, you know, owners are able to apply as and when they like. Uh, it's more receptive and accepted by the dog. And, and obviously, yeah. it's less time-consuming. So, absolutely. So, topical moisturizers are a big, big, big thing in my clinic. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. combined yeah. with uh, shampoos as well. Yeah, sure. And when we talked about topical probiotics, what, what is the um, sort of format of those are you using anything yourself yet? Or what was the format in the studies that you mentioned? Was it a spray or a leave-on? Uh, so most of the studies that have been shown in the papers are, are oral probiotics. Uh, so mm-hmm. as we mentioned, uh, of the two g- g- genera, so lactobacillus and enterococcus. So uh, yeah. a lot of the, the studies in dogs are done using sort of uh, lactobacillus, basically. So we do try yeah. and look for something that contains this, um, preferably yeah. uh, at sufficient concentration, obviously, because as we know, we need to have an idea uh, population of these uh, healthy probiotics to make, make a difference in, in the gut. Um, in the yeah. study, uh, most, of the, most of the topical probiotics are unfortunately not commercially available uh, in Australia yeah. yet. So we're yeah. not quite at that stage. So at this point, 
uh, we tend to um, look for something that's uh, orally uh, as a probiotic. Yeah, sure. And also don't forget, there's also such thing called a prebiotics. So prebiotics are basically mm. uh, you know, foods that add as a food for the, the microflora. So we sort of encourages mm-hmm. the growth of these good bacteria. So we tend to use what we call symbiotics, which is a combination mm-hmm. of both prebiotics and probiotics um, to sort of mm-hmm. maximize the benefits. And... Mm. Um, I would really, we've talked sort of mainly about dogs today and dogs do tend to get a bit more of the limelight in general on our podcast, but we are trying to give a little more space to cats. I know that they're um, they're perhaps a little trickier in a lot of ways to study and to treat for a lot of different things, but how does what you're talking about today in, in terms of skin barrier health translate to cats and what are you seeing in practice? Yes. So uh, as you mentioned, Sarah, the studies in cats are unfortunately less and they tend to be a bit forgotten or uh, mm-hmm. people tend to think they are small dogs. So they are very, very different yeah. as you would. So we have some studies in, in cats as well, uh, not as many as in dogs. Uh, we find that a, the bacterial community, so the microbiome, uh, is quite unique to, um, or rather not as, um, uh, it's, it's quite different in, in, in cats in the sense that they don't have a, a very uh, consistently uh, common pool of organisms on their skin. Uh, and we also found that at least so far that the biodiversity uh, is not that significantly different between healthy cats uh, and cats with uh, allergies. Uh, we okay. do know that um, cats with inflamed skin, they carry more staphylococcus, uh, but mm-hmm. the species composition and the balance of the uh, staphylococcus does not appear to be a significant difference between, again, healthy cats and uh, cats with allergies. Uh, We also do know that in certain breeds, uh, the microbiome is is quite unique. So for example, uh, spins and cornish rags, uh, because of their uh, hair coat or or lack of hair coat, uh, we found that malassezia plays a bigger role uh, in the Mm. microbiome. Uh, which also yeah. unfortunately means that when these cats develop inflammatory skin diseases, uh, they're more prone to developing malassezia or a yeast overgrowth. Yeah, right. And um, are you sort of treating cats in terms of their skin barrier, um, apart from you know the, the sort of microbial differences that we've discussed, are you treating any skin barrier deficits in exactly the same way that you would a dog in terms of the you know, topicals, orals, and sort of focusing on trying to understand? I think cats are less receptive to shampoos, uh, uh, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> um, and they tend to obviously grow themselves uh, <laughs> yeah. even more than dogs. Uh, so I do for more topical sprays uh, and, yeah. and, and and lotions and moisturizers, I suppose. Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, again, you know, you can lather it in quite comfortably, a bit of bonding time between the pet and the owner. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think cats are more sensitive to uh, topical moisturizers than, than shampoos. So yeah, again, yeah. Uh, you know, extrapolating from humans and dogs, uh, we tend to use um, <clears throat> topical products that tend to contain ceramides um, yep. yeah, uh, to try and improve the skin barrier. Yeah, sure. And do you tend to sort of follow the same route as you would with a dog in terms of, you know, treating any parasite overgrowth um, and doing a sort of food elimination diet and then trying to understand if there's any environmental allergens underlying the the itch and the inflammation? Is that sort of the same pathway that you would take with a cat? Yeah, absolutely. So again, we, we sort of adopt a holistic approach. So uh, again, we need to control the, the inflammation. So we look for underlying allergies. 
uh, and cats do get the same allergies as as we as they get in dogs. So food allergies, mm-hmm. environmental allergies. Uh, we can also desensitize them against environmental allergens as well. Uh, yeah. Cats are traditionally thought to be less prone to recurring infections, but now we know that this is untrue. Unfortunately, uh, we do see a lot of cats with bacterial infections uh, that mm-hmm. will benefit from topical antiseptics. Uh, and obviously, mm-hmm. if require oral antibiotics. And the same theory applies mm-hmm. that giving oral antibiotics affect the gut microflora. So we really, yeah. really want to make sure we only use it uh, you know, only when it's you know, absolutely necessary. Yeah, sure. And I know we're sort of getting close to time, but I just had a couple more questions. On the antibiotic use, on oral antibiotic use, when do you kind of make the call of whether either, you know, from sort of the first onset um, that you would think that the the pet might need oral rather than topical antibiotics or after you've tried topical antimicrobials for a while, when do you decide to then add in an oral antimicrobial? Yes. So it uh, it depends on a few few factors, but uh, essentially it depends on... So so bacteria infections in dogs... Uh, is is briefly broken down into three different uh, uh, different subsets, I suppose. So you get the superficial uh, infections. So these are very mm-hmm. common in uh, you know dogs with foals, so facial foals yeah. in parks, French bulldogs, bulldogs, for example, uh, where the bacteria is technically on the surface of the skin. Uh, and then you have superficial. So superficial tends to be more on the surface, but it starts to involve the epidermis. And then lastly, mm-hmm. you got the deep bacterial infections, which is where the bacteria is uh, invaded the, the deeper layers of the epidermis, but also the dermis and sometimes the fat. Mm-hmm. So if I have yeah. a dog with surface and superficial uh, bacterial infections, uh, we are very, very big on using topical antiseptics. And the reason yeah. is because studies have shown that topical antiseptics are often sufficient in treating yeah. these infections. Now, if yeah. I have a superficial infection that is unfortunately very widespread, very generalized, then I might start thinking, all right, we might need a short course of antibiotics to treat the infection. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's mainly because it's not very practical uh, to use topical yeah. antiseptic uh, in a large area. Everywhere. Now, yeah, to sure. use antibiotics, it's also very important that there's a different tier system. So we always try something that is very narrow spectrum. So we only want mm-hmm. to affect hopefully the pathogenic bacteria. And we, are, we know that in dogs, uh, bacterial infection is almost always due to cephalococcus two intermediates. So we choose mm-hmm. antibiotics that is very, very effective against these species, uh, but mm-hmm. also very narrow spectrum. So we don't want any collateral injury damage. Uh, we don't want to kill any other good bacteria in the gut and on the skin as well. Yeah. Yep. When we start to go into deeper infections, unfortunately, antibiotics are required in these cases. And yeah. ideally, uh, antibiotic selection should be based on culture results. So the reason yep. is you want to make sure that if this is potentially a resistant bacteria, that you use yeah. the right antibiotics to kill the bacteria and not something that is not going to kill the bad bacteria, but potentially harm the good bacteria that's trying to fight against the bad bacteria as well. So yeah. the depth of the infection, the distribution, and, and obviously owner factors. So again, you know, some of our clients are unable to um, you know, use topical therapies, or antiseptics on a regular basis. 
uh, either due mm-hmm. to obviously you know um, you know personal reasons or, or or dog factors. So in those cases, yeah, sure. we might wish for antibiotics uh, earlier. Mm. But yeah. you know the thing no, about really antibiotic clear. resistance. So um so when we, we so we we try and discourage the use of oral antibiotics. But we also need to remember that antibody resistance uh, develop also if we keep using antibodies uh, again and again. And that's why, as you mentioned before, Sarah, it's so important to have a holistic approach. We need to find out why the dog is developing infection. And that could be allergies, uh, hormonal, endocrine diseases, parasites. Because if you can control those primary diseases, and then mm-hmm. the dog is going to be less prone to having recurring infection and therefore mm-hmm. you're going to be needing much less oral antibiotics than you need to. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's so clear. Gosh, I sometimes wish that I um that I was the host of this podcast back when I was in university because I think it would have really helped <laughs> or in my early early years in practice. Because <laughs> I think, you know, your summary today has touched on so many different aspects of what I know is a very common presentation in general practice and obviously in referral practice for you as well. Um, such clear sort of, you know, diagnostic pathways and treatment options and I love that you're, you know, so, um, in touch with the latest literature that's been published and really take that holistic approach to your cases. Um, so thank you so much, Meng. It's been an absolute pleasure today to talk to you about this. Is there anything else that you want to share with us before we say goodbye? Oh, no, I just want to say thank you, Sarah, for inviting me uh, on the podcast. I really enjoy myself. Uh, and definitely, I think, um, uh, I suppose, you know, things change and medicine improves. So uh, definitely, I feel, you know, um, Skin barrier, very, very important, uh, not just for allergic pets, but for various reasons, you know, uh, any skin diseases, the gut microflora. So definitely, I think everyone should be really, really uh, pushing the boundary to sort of a holistic approach, trying to improve, you know, uh, the, you know the status of the skin through other means apart from traditional treatments. And I think like mm-hmm. you pointed out, topical uh, probiotics, improving the skin barrier, even the gut microflora. I think there's just so much information out there that you know will be really, really useful for us to take in and implement that in our in our day-to-day practices. Yeah, I agree. Oh, well, thank you so much, Meng. Um, I'll let you go. I know that you're about to start your day probably going into practice, <laughs> I would imagine. So um, I'll let you go and get started and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you everyone for listening in. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Make sure you tune in next month where we'll be talking to Dr. Wendy Boltzer about preventative joint health. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for individualised veterinary advice and listeners should ensure to seek advice from their pet's own veterinary professional.